This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book under the covering title of Saul, who also is called Paul, but particularly referring to his own statement that he had treasure in the earthen vessel, and we are dipping into that earthen vessel to bring out before us some of the treasures of truth that we find there. And the treasure this morning is enshrined in the word adoption. Now the word adoption in the eyes or the ears of some people and the word adoption as it comes in the New Testament vastly different. I think generally we should, be, we should remember that it's one thing to have a word in a dictionary and it's another thing to have a word in its context and surroundings. Uh, for instance, it just occurred to me before I climbed up here that if two farmers were speaking and they used the word clutch, they most likely would refer to a nest of eggs. But if you went down the garage and uh, you used the word clutch, you'd immediately think of your car. So you see, not only the actual word itself, but its context and its surroundings. Now we had read to us that wonderful chapter, Romans the 8th chapter, and here we have these words. Verse 15. Romans the 8th chapter, verse 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby ye cry, Abba, Father. Well, it's obvious that the one who wrote that verse put bondage over against adoption. Well, now, we, wouldn't, we would not immediately think of the word adoption as being in contrast to slavery. For thank God there are some evils which have not, as it be allowed to multiply in this country. You go back to the history of Rome. There were free men and there were slaves. And he's contrasting the slave with the one who has the spirit of adoption. So you say, well, why say adoption? Because the adoption sounds like a sort of a Dr. Bernardo's home where they look after poor little children whom nobody loves. And No, no, we are entirely wrong, you see. We've got to get down to this word and its usage and the way which it was employed in the Apostles' day, where you'll find it something much more important than that. One of the first things perhaps we ought to do is to think of the word, or to look at the word as originally written by Paul. Of course, he didn't say adoption. The word he used is whyothesia. Well, you say, well, what does that mean? Well, it's made up of two parts. Whyos is the word son. It's used of Christ, the son of God. Whyos is the word son. Thessia is from Tithemi to place. And it means to place a person in the position of a son. Well, you don't talk about a child that's born into a family as being placed in a position of a son. He is a son. So this is something different, yes. It was a legal transaction where a person could take a slave if needs be, and give some honour to that slave who was faithful, 
and place him as a son in the family. And then it had other things attached to it. We discover, when we examine the way in which it was used in Paul's day, that a person who was given the adoption had a greater claim upon the parents and all to do with it than the ordinary son. The ordinary son that's born into a family could be cut off and lose his inheritance. But once you adopted somebody, you had taken him on for good and evil and for life or death, it didn't matter, you could not move him. Don't you see, friends, unless you know that, you haven't got the spirit of adoption in the sense of appreciating it. So I felt it was worthwhile looking at that. So shall we notice the many times there is this emphasis upon uh, fear or bondage or being put in subjection that comes over and over again when the apostle is writing to his believing people. We have not received the spirit of fear. We have received the spirit of adoption. And so the one is contrasted with the other. How many times we read about this question of it being in bondage, bondage to ordinances, bondage to the opinions of others, bondage to the things of the world, but you're set free from bondage if you've received adoption. And if you've received adoption, you are not only a child of God by birth, but you're a child of God by this institution which God has adopted, I'm using the word again in a new sense, from the Roman law and translated it into his own glorious action towards you and me. The spirit of adoption. There are some who think that when you say the word Ephesians, you're going to be all up in the hair or further than the air, spiritual blessings in heavenly places, and you have no reference to things beyond that. Well, adoption, with all that it means, is there waiting for us in the epistle to the Ephesians. And as the epistle to the Ephesians is the one where we find our calling and our destiny, I think we'll start there, shall we, and look at the way in which the apostle has introduced it there. Ephesians, the first chapter, the fifth verse. So we haven't got far in that verse chapter before we come to this. And I think we should have to read the first five verses to see the way in which he leads up to it. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are in Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, and he doesn't say where, well that includes you and me, if that's a title to which we have a right. Grace be to you and peace, from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, now it's all leading up to and focusing our attention, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure 
of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved. This chapter, you know, a part of it is subdivided, the will of the Father, the work of the Son, and the witness of the Spirit. Here we have the will of the Father, not merely giving us new life like in the kingdom terms, you must be born again. This is over and above being born again. This is something given to you as a legal process. The adoption. Being placed. The word place at the end of the word wyothesia is translated to a point. Somebody to an office. Or ordain someone to an office. They're appointed or ordained. And this one says predestinated. Some folks are rather shy about the word predestination because it looks as though it's in, involving the idea of destiny, which of course is not true. Our destination this morning, when we were at Beckenham, was to get to the chapel. But there was no destiny about it or fate about it. That was our destination. And predestination is made up of two parts, pro beforehand, and the other word gives us the word horizon, the little mark that you, you imagine you see dividing the sea and the sky, God has marked off beforehand. In other words, he's done what perhaps you and I have done. You've made your will. If you haven't got anything to leave, it doesn't matter. But if you've got anything at all, don't wait till it's too late and upset all the family afterwards. God has done it. He's made his will. And this predestination has marked off beforehand some of those who were far off from God. Not merely the people of Israel, but the Ephesians who were idolaters. He's marked some of those off not only to salvation and blessing and peace and hope and all that we get in the Ephesians, but he's marked them off that they should have this firstborn's position, this adoption. Well, now we go a little further with this to get an idea in um, chapter 4, verse 30. We have another expression that we want to remember. Grieve, uh, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. You have been already sealed. We have not reached the day of redemption, that. That's the day which redemption covers body, soul, spirit and everything. We've got the foretaste now. But you're sealed. So here's a, something that's been uh, uh, planned beforehand, something which has been done by God at the time, and the seal is the seal of the Spirit. Now that's where we come in, friends, if we believe God. This adoption is a part of what Christ has purchased for us. And I felt it was one of those treasures we should lift out at least and give our attention. You do know, of course, in the... Um, Epistle to the Romans, we have an outer and an inner section. The outer section starts with naturally chapter 1, and uh, it goes back as far as Abraham. But the inner section starts in chapter 5, and it goes back in the 8th chapter as far as Adam. And there we have God planning before man, before man fell, that he would have some who were not only children born and begotten of the Spirit, 
but he should have some who would be placed in their position as sons in the adopted sense. So I think perhaps we'll turn to Romans the 8th chapter again to notice one or two other features. Romans the 8th chapter, verse 15. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Oh, verse 15, I've missed out. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage. You see, here's the contrast which we're looking at. No longer slavery, but freedom. This has that meaning, of course, to these people, uh, in a sense that it cannot mean to us, because we haven't been shackled and put in the same position as slaves as these were. Although sometimes we get apparently very near to it. For we have not received the, the spirit of bondage, again to fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Now why does he put Abba in there? Why doesn't he simply say, whereby we cry, Father? I doubt whether anybody in this little congregation has recently said Abba. You see, it doesn't mean what it meant in those days to us. But there's a law that you can discover in the Roman law that no slave could ever use the word Abba. It was reserved for a free man. So if you've never used it, you use it in spirit. You can approach God in a sense that no person in bondage and slavery, either physically or in spirit particularly, can do. So there again you see, the word has more meaning in it than, first of all, on the surface, when we begin to dig into its origins. And so we have this emphasis on the... And then in the 17th verse, we have this statement. If children, if we've already become sons of God, what's the next consequence? Well, he says, if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. Well, of course, that doesn't always follow in every daily life. I mean, I was a child of my parents, but the only inheritance I got was a memory of love and uh, very little else, because there was nothing to inherit. But in our case, our Father is the God of glory. And he says, if you're adopted, you become heirs. This is to an inheritance. And so we read here, uh, if children, then heirs. And he doesn't stop there. He says heirs of God. Because some children inherit that which is not to their advantage. Heirs of God. And then he goes further and he says, not only heirs of God, but joint heirs with Christ. This is marvellous, isn't it? If we have this adoption, we're joint heirs with Christ. We make up a new company of those who have been set free and given this glorious privilege. He gives a, a qualification, if so be that we, um, uh, that, um, where am I? Oh yes, joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. He means to say that it won't be all roses, roses all the way in this life, but that's only for a time. 
and these things are an accompaniment because you're in a world which is antagonistic to God and his purposes. So we have, again, in verse 23, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Having this position in Christ, we are anticipating already in this life the glory that's coming. Sometimes we forget it a little bit. You see that I have to hobble across and be helped up into this pulpit and it very often I forget, I must admit, the glory that's coming by the pain that's present. But he says, well, that's, that's this life. But you think of what's at the end of the journey. It'll help you along. And so he says, um, we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. What are we waiting for? Well, if we weren't quoting scripture, we might find one person was waiting for this and one person was waiting for that and they would gradually sum it up with a glory that's to be revealed. But he puts his finger on this word adoption again. Waiting for the adoption. And then he says to wit. Of course, that slipped in because it's a link. What do you mean by the adoption in this case? The redemption of our body. So there's going to be a redemption that goes beyond the forgiveness of sins. And this is focusing our attention upon the resurrection that must take place. And one day we're going to be free in a sense we never can in this life. The heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, with this adoption as their glorious possession. I think perhaps we ought now to turn to the epistle to the Galatians, for that also has a word to say about this same subject, which ought to be dear to every one of us. Chapter 4. The first six verses of chapter 4. Now I say that the heir, he's speaking about one who has been made the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant or a slave, though he be lord of all. But is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Now you see, the apostle is having to take another line. He say, now don't you presume. Don't think that because you know the meaning of this adoption, that all the restraints and all the restrictions are gone. Oh, you're not there yet. Don't forget that the child, though he's lord of all, has a nurse that gives him a smack sometimes. Oh yes, royal children have to have a little pat sometimes, and those who are not royal get it whether they like it or not, most of us do. But he says that's what you must expect. But he's under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage. You see, over and over again you'll find in the vicinity of this word adoption the idea of being slaves or in bondage. It's, it's in Romans, it's here. That gives you the sort of atmosphere in which the word must be considered, not merely its dictionary term. 
Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. The elements of the world are the basic ways in which you must behave yourself, but sometimes they become crippling because they are not quite in harmony with the will of God. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So again, you see, it's all looking at freedom from legalism. It's standing at last on your two feet as a child of God, being placed there by God in his grace. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. Here it comes again, crying, what? Not merely father, but Abba father. See, the man who wrote that and the people who read that knew what I just said to you, that no slave was permitted to use that word Abba. It was so sacred in the estimate of those who used it that it was reserved for those who were free people. And so here. Isn't that a sort of a thought to us too? We come into the presence of our Father. Our Father in heaven. Because we are children of God. Not merely by new birth, but because of his grace in lifting us out and giving us this position as the adopted ones in his family. And if the adopted, then they are heirs. In chapter 5 of this same epistle to the Galatians, we read these words. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Always so concerned that those who have been given this honour by God, of adopting them into the family of faith, and lifting them out of the supervision of tutors and governors, and giving them into the hands of Christ. Oh, don't go back and put yourself under this, or under that, or under the other. Behold, I will say unto you, that if you be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. And that, of course, was a great trouble in the early days, because of their association with the people of Israel. But it has its parallels in so many uh, things today that can be imposed upon the children of God. So there we have this emphasis on the word liberty. Chapter 5, verse 1. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 17, just to get another glimpse. Uh, we'll go back a little bit. He's speaking about the difference between the law and the gospel. Verse 9, For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, and Mount Sinai was a most glorious affair, but it condemned, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glorious in this, glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. Well, he's piling on the word glory here, friends, to those who he's going to address in connection with his adoption. Let's go on then. For if that which is done away 
was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, that their minds were blinded. For until this day remain the same veil, remains the same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. But now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. He's again addressing these people who are no longer under tutors and governors, but have been appointed by God to take the position of sons of God in the family of faith. All he says, don't disgrace it by putting yourself into bondage, for you've been set free. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with not open face, it's such a pity, same word, unveiled face. The contrast between Moses. Moses put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel should not see that the glory was passing away. But we have a glory that remains and abides. And so we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even by the Spirit of the Lord. These terms, I must admit, they don't yield their teaching immediately. They need a great deal of comparative study. I'm just reading them for what we can get out of them at the moment. And if you will look again at the epistle say, to Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. Colossians 1, 27. He's speaking about the mystery that was hid and now revealed to the saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches and the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of the glory. So all these things belong to this high and wonderful calling in relation to the folks who are not merely born again in that sense, but are appointed to this dignity of sons. Well now I'm going to read from the um, writings of one who went into this subject with great care and detail, um, Ramsey, in his epistle to the Galatians. Because it's something that you could not discover unless you had access to these ancient monuments and documents. The idea that they who follow the principle of faith are sons of Abraham, whatever family they belong to by nature, would certainly be understood by the Galatians as referring to the legal process called adoption. You see, the Galatians were not descendants of Abraham, but they were told that they were sons of Abraham. Well, as they practiced this uh, method of adopting somebody who was entirely outside the family, they would immediately realize that God was doing the same. Adoption was a kind of embryo will 
the adopted son became the owner of the property, and the property could pass to a person that was naturally outside the family only through his being adopted. The adoption was a sort of will-making, and the ancient form of will was irrevocable and public. The terms son and heir are interchangeable. If you're an adopted son, then you're an heir. It, it follows naturally. An illustration from the ordinary fact of society, as it existed in the Galatian cities, is here stated. I speak after the manner of men, says the Apostle. The will of a human being is irrevocable when once duly uh, executed. But if Paul is speaking about a will, how can he say after it is once made it is irrevocable? I mean to say, you might say, well, uh, you made your will, and then the person that you put down to have a little inheritance upset you, so you have a new will and cut him out. But you couldn't do that in Galatia, not under this law. You had to be very, very careful before you made your will, because once you did it, it was irrevocable. Isn't that a picture of God? He said, you see, these Galatians knew what they were talking about, or when he spoke to them about this position of being adopted. So you'll forgive me if I'm reading this, because I don't know any other way of reading you know it except those who've dug into the question and brought it to light. Such irrevocability was a characteristic feature of Greek law, according to which an heir, outside the family, must be adopted into the family, and the adoption was the will-making. The testator, after adopting his heir, could not consequently take away from him his share of the inheritance, or impose new conditions on his succession. That's adoption. The Roman Syrian law book will illustrate the passage of the epistle. It actually lays down the principle that a man can never put away his adopted son, and that he cannot put away a real son without good ground, you notice. He could put away his real son if he got good ground, but he could not put away the adopted son for anything. This is extraordinary, isn't it? But there's the Greek law, and the Galatians knew it. So when Paul spoke about the adoption, they knew what he was speaking about, which we have only got a glimpse, you see, after all our endeavours. We don't live under the same uh, regime. So I'll go on again. It is, it is remarkable that the adopted son should have a stronger position than the son by birth. Yet it is so. The expression in Galatians 3.15, when it hath been confirmed, must also be observed. You see, when it hath been confirmed, no man disalloweth or addeth thereto, it says in Galatians. Every will had to be passed through the record office of the city. It was not regarded in the Greek law as a purely private document. It must be deposited in the record office. If the reader will, if the reader will read Galatians 3, Chapter 4, Ephesians 1, in the light of the Galatian usage of adoption, it will be seen how utterly impossible it is for any subsequent law, sin, or forfeiture to deprive the heir of the full benefits of this adoption. When the time appointed by the Father arrives, you and I, by the mercy of God, will be there. Now this doesn't mean to say that we 
to take things loosely. It only makes us feel, oh, that I may live in harmony with it, which is, of course, the other side of the story. But I felt somehow that this um, question of the adoption was so muddled and mixed up with our present-day idea of adopting some poor little kid or sending them to some home or whatnot. Oh, friends, heaven isn't a glorified adoption in that sense. It's this sense of giving a place, a, a person a place in the inheritance which was irrevocable and couldn't be forfeited or lost. And if I've managed to make you feel that that is so, it may be worth all this tussle we've had with this particular word. If you have received the spirit of adoption, you are now an heir of God, a joint heir with Christ, and nothing, nothing in heaven or earth can disinherit you. May you go in the strength of that, friends, out into the world and meet the world, the flesh and the devil with some strengthening of the moral fibre because of what God has done and the way in which he has safeguarded his purposes.